To know where the internet is going, you have to know where it's been. Every episode will examine the sites, terms, and personalities that have defined the online world. So strap on your chrono belts, time cadets. It's time to take a trip to the Old Wide Web. Episode 8, Lawyer Up. Hi, I'm Bill Meeks, and welcome to another episode of the Old Wide Web. I'm here to teach you the history of the internet. Whether you're a newbie or an old tech head, I'm going to give you an overview of how the internet evolved into what it is today. This week's episode is all about matters legal and moral. I know, I know, seems like it might be a pretty dry subject, but I've tried to pick the most exciting stories I could find. First up, let's go back to the dawn of the 21st century and the software that would change the music industry forever. That's right, I'm talking about Napster. Before there was iTunes, before there was BitTorrent, before there was LimeWire, there was Napster. If you were a college student in the early aughts, odds were you used Napster, one of the first widespread P2P file-sharing programs. Now basically, I just written in that I was one of the first few hundred users of Napster. It was kind of my claim to fame back then. Um, I was in like a, a cheesy little America Online pirated software group, and uh, if I remember correctly, I think the girl's name was uh, some lead speak variation of Baby Doll or something like that. Uh, she claimed that she was dating this guy in college, and um, supposedly it was Sean Tiny. And um, he, you know, she brought Napster into our group. You know, when Napster first started out, even though there was so few users, it was just incredible, like the amount of selection and all that type of stuff that was out there. You know, some of the greatest benefits for me was being able to find all these new artists. Uh, Napster, as far as I know, was one of the first things where you could actually browse a specific user's library. And for me, that was huge because um, I could find someone who, music-wise, had the same taste as me. And I found out a whole bunch of different bands that I still listen to to this day. You know, the media caught wind of Napster and it started getting, I guess you could say, like, notoriety. And out of nowhere, I'd say within a week, um, you know, it jumped from... I'd be searching for one song and there'd be maybe five or ten people that would have it. And a week later, there'd be, you know, a hundred people having the same thing. And from there, it just kind of completely blew up. And, of course, you know, all the media caught wind of it. And my brother, who I had gotten an account for in Napster, um, actually was one of the people I got banned from it um, for having Metallica. Despite what movies like The Social Network would have you believe, Napster wasn't started by Justin Timberlake or Sean Parker. It was founded in 1999 by an 18-year-old college dropout named Sean Fanning. He launched the service on his Pentium 100 Linux server on June 1st of that year after working on it for only six months. He got the idea while he was working at Chess.net, which was owned by his Uncle John. People had already been using services like IRC and Usenet to share files for years, but Napster focused purely on MP3 files. 
If he had come up with the idea any sooner, it might not have taken off. But the growth of high-speed internet, especially on college campuses, coupled with the ease of use made the service grow at a rapid pace. Listen to the voice you hear. At first, fans thought Napster could be used as a promotional tool. In fact, the band Dispatch promoted the service at all of their shows. It worked out well for them, increasing their profile so much that by 2007 they became the first independent band to ever headline at Madison Square Garden. Other bands reacted to Napster with humor, such as the Bare Naked Ladies who leaked Trojan versions of the new cuts from their album Maroon on Napster. Hi folks, this is Stephen Page. This is Tyler Stewart. We're two members of Bare Naked Ladies, and although you thought you were downloading our new single, what you're actually downloading is an advertisement for our new album, Maroon. It comes out uh, September 12th, and uh, after that point, I'm sure you can download lots of stuff from our But until then, you just can get lots of stuff with us bugging you. If you're listening, we're trying to get our song on Napster. We don't know how to do it. Uh, we're Bare Naked Ladies, and we're trying to... Hi, can you just press that over there? You know what? I, I figured out I, I can do like an equation in Fortran when I was in high school in 84, but that's about the extent of my uh, freaking computer science knowledge. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm typing if uh, bare naked ladies then upload to Napster and it's not really doing anything. I spilled a coffee on my flowchart. Do I have to write run? Okay, we'll, we'll try again. But some acts like Metallica weren't so amused. When the demo of their song, I Disappear, leaked on Napster, they decided to take it to court. Something the internet didn't take too kindly to, as shown in the viral animation, Napster Bad. Like, good afternoon, my name is, you know, like, Lars Ulrich from Metallica. I've worked for years to get where I am today. Years and years of playing clubs and recording demo tapes. Me and my buddy, like, James Hetfield here, have shed blood, sweat, and mother beer to get where we are today. Beer! Good! And now we're wealthy beyond, you know, like, belief. I mean, the other day it was, like, obvious to me how much money we have, because our basis, you know, like, mother Jason Newstead bought his very first gold-plated Ferrari, and the thing came with, you know, like, a crew of naked Filipino sex slaves. I worship you! You, the Metallica fan! Beer! Good! Unless you download it until it sleeps from Napster! Then you're going to mother jail! Several other artists quickly followed Metallica's example and sought damages. Even Madonna, who was in talks to partner with Napster to promote her upcoming album, became irate when her single, Music, leaked on the service. In the year 2000, several record companies gathered together under the umbrella of the RIAA and sued Napster for copyright infringement under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. They claimed that Napster's users were directly infringing and that the service itself was liable. 
Napster lost the case and was ordered to monitor and remove infringing content. But with over 26 million users and no reliable revenue stream, they didn't have the resources to play whack-a-mole with users' libraries and were forced to shut down in July of 2001. Napster ended up being fined $36 million and attempted to transition to a subscription service to cover the cost. But naturally, the labels weren't willing to give them the proper licenses to distribute music legally. They declared bankruptcy in 2002. The $36 million fine was small compared to fines levied against individual users today, such as Jamie Thomas who was fined $80,000 per song. She's still fighting that ruling. Many other services like Audio Galaxy, LimeWire, and eDonkey have come and gone crushed by similar lawsuits or even the threat of them. But BitTorrent still stands strong as the number one way to obtain unlicensed tracks. Slowly but surely, the record companies have started to give users what they want. Amazon and iTunes both sell DRM-free MP3s for a small sum. Many bands offer tracks for free from their website. Even Napster has made a return as a legit music subscription service run by Best Buy. And most poetically, Lars Ulrich of Metallica has come around to see the power the internet offers artists and fans. Most of the fans we're meeting around the world, the only way they can get music is by downloading it on the internet. You know, how do you feel about that? I think it's a great thing, yeah. I think it's great. I mean, it, yeah. obviously it's the way to share this stuff and I, I think it's awesome. I think that we were somewhat um, flabbergasted at the um, at some early internet things that were going on a few years ago, but we've sort of we're at peace with that, and, and we just championed it like everybody else. What the internet has done, you know, which is a great thing of, of bringing everything, you know, and making everything available and global and so on. I mean, it's just awesome. I mean, listen, at this point, if kids can get their hands on the music, then it's a great thing. Napster was the David to the RIAA's Goliath and fundamentally changed the rules of one of the biggest industries of the late 20th century. Pretty good for a little program hacked together by a teenager in less than a year. Music for this segment is provided by Adam Split, a cartoon band who fights against the evil record industry. You can get their music, watch the cartoon, and read their comic strip for free at adamsplit.com. Find your Mixed Media offers video, animation, web design and programming, motion graphics. If you have a project involving audio, video, or the web, Meeks Mixed Media can help you. Need individualized attention from a media pro with over five years of professional experience? Click on Hire Us at MeeksMixedMedia.com or send an email to contact at MeeksMixedMedia.com to get started. Meeks Mixed Media. Welcome to now. Welcome back. Uh, for the record, my first MP3 wasn't downloaded on Napster. I used AOL chat rooms to download a copy of Sublime, What I Got. Probably back in 1996, 
Basically, you'd go into a private chat room set up for file sharing, type in a command, and get sent a file list in your email from another user. Then you would just request any file you wanted from them. The nice thing about this was that the file would stay in your inbox for a few days until you got around to downloading the whole thing, which could take a while at 2400 baud. But don't you worry, our legal journey isn't over yet. Let's see what happened when a company people love to hate, Microsoft, goes up against an entity that people love to hate just as much, the U.S. government. But before we get to that, let's listen to another one of your first online memories in a segment I like to call Memory Allocation. Downloading memory. Processing. Processing complete. Dispense memory. My earliest online memory was probably when I first got my modem. I think it was a 2400 baud modem, and I signed up with Prodigy. Um, I don't think that lasted very long. Uh, Then I got into finding bulletin boards, you know, getting on bulletin board systems, you know, whatever ones happen to be local to my area. I think I played around with AOL a little bit, and then I went off to school, and then we had just full-blown internet and, you know, web browsers and everything, and that's when I really got into uh, spending a lot more time online. With the bulletin boards, it was really kind of roaming around looking for files or games or whatever. Uh, I never really got into message boards or chat systems or internet relay chat or anything like that. You know, most of my stuff online was really reading, reading articles or, uh, you know, looking for games and stuff like that. Lexicon. Viral. When a meme spreads across the internet, it is said to go viral. A popular buzzword among internet marketers and social media experts. The word is also associated with disease and pandemic level threats. Please draw your own conclusions. Internet marketers note, calling your funny little video promo viral on social networking websites is the number one way to ensure that it won't go viral at all. We all know about the rivalry between Microsoft and Apple, or to a lesser degree, Microsoft and Sony. But these petty corporate squabbles pale in comparison to Microsoft's fight with the United States government. The fight began when Microsoft decided to bundle Internet Explorer with its Windows operating system. These days, we don't think anything of it. Macs come with Safari, Internet Explorer comes with Windows. For a lot of people, bundled browsers are used once to download the user's browser of choice, but it's still a default. The whole thing really came down to whether a web browser was a product or a feature. See, back in 1991, the Federal Trade Commission opened up an investigation on whether or not Microsoft was abusing its position as the top PC operating system manufacturer. The commission had some internal disagreements and by 1993 closed its investigation only for the Department of Justice to open its own later that year. It never went to trial, but by August of 1993, Microsoft agreed to keep the sale of its operating system and its other products separate. So, is a web browser a feature or a product? The Justice Department and Attorney Generals of 20 states thought it was the latter, and of course Microsoft disagreed. 
As part of the OEM licensing of the Windows operating system to computer manufacturers, Microsoft required the bundling of the Internet Explorer feature, which quickly made IE the number one browser by 1999. The way the government saw it, by forcing manufacturers to only distribute IE and disallowing the bundling of Netscape, Microsoft was moving firmly into monopolistic behavior. So Microsoft was accused of being in violation of its previous agreements and potentially the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, which tasked the government with bringing action against companies that stifle competition. And so it was that Bill Gates was called to testify. He may be one of our greatest philanthropists today, but back in the 90s, Bill Gates was seen as a paragon of excess. Hi, everybody! (laughs) Bill Gates here. I just wanted to interrupt that Polish guy to announce an exciting business deal for us here at Microsoft. With the recent judgment against us concerning antitrust laws, we've decided to branch out into other interests. So effective immediately, Microsoft has officially merged with Christmas. So from now on, if you want to celebrate Christmas, you must own Windows 95. And if you're a Mac user, you're now Jewish. Yeah, he had a house and was very, 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 very rich. But he didn't see himself as a bad guy and felt that his company was being unfairly targeted by the U.S. Justice Department and the media in general. His feelings came across very clearly in his deposition, which an anonymous source called evasive and unresponsive. But hey, we live in the future and actually have tape, so you can decide for yourself. I'll give you a softball question. Would you agree that Microsoft is the world's most respected computer software company? Some people would agree with that. Some people wouldn't. What's your opinion? I think we are the most, if you took, took it on a statistical basis, yes, we'd be the most respected software company. Uh, this computer dictionary defines the operating system as follows. Uh, the software that controls the allocation and usage of hardware resources such as memory, central processing unit, time, disk space, and peripheral devices. Is that an accurate definition of an operating system? Well, the notion of what's in an operating system has has changed quite a bit over time. Um, So that, that definition is is not really complete in terms of how people think of operating systems in the last decade or so. Another term I'm sure we're going to be using throughout the course uh, of the deposition is web browser. Web browser is defined uh, by the Microsoft Computer Dictionary as follows. A client application that enables a user to view HTML documents on the World Wide Web, another network for the user's computer, follow the hyperlinks among them and transfer files. Is that accurate? It's actually describing browsing functionality. Is it an accurate definition of browsing functionality? It describes part of what you do when you browse. Mm -hmm. What's your definition of a web browser? I'd say browsing technology is is what lets you navigate uh, through it typically means H, something that lets you do HTML display and, and navigation. Is that what you mean when you use the term web browser? 
website. Is that what you mean when you use the term web browser? Well, software that lets you do web browsing uh, is sometimes referred to as a web browser. And Microsoft has uh, marketed a web browser uh, under the trend name Internet Explorer, is that correct? We've used the term Internet Explorer to refer to the Internet technologies in Windows as well as some standalone products we've done. But certainly the, the product we shipped, it was before October 1995, uh, was Windows 95. The browsing functionality we had in it, we've updated quite a bit several times. And so defining Internet Explorer to be what we shipped just on one particular date can't be considered accurate. You have to say that many times we've taken the browsing functionality in Windows, which we refer to as Internet Explorer, and we've updated that functionality. So you can't really pin the definition to a particular date. It's really a, a brand name we use for those technologies. But Microsoft was far from an innocent victim. Intel Vice President Stephen McGeady quoted a senior vice president at the SOF saying that Internet Explorer was meant to stifle Netscape's growth, though Microsoft denied the allegations. Part of Microsoft's defense was that Internet Explorer was so tied to the operating system that removing it would cause Windows to malfunction. They produced a tape to prove this, but due to some video production errors, the results were inconclusive. Microsoft did admit to falsifying another tape that showed how supposedly easy it was for an America Online customer to download and install Netscape. See, the government produced its own tape proving that there were several hoops users had to jump through, so they were kind of backed into a corner. Microsoft attempted to paint the case as anti-consumer, and it worked to some degree. The Independent Institute, a nonprofit research organization, printed an open letter to President Clinton in the Washington Post and the New York Times, suggesting the government was doing the bidding of Microsoft's competitors. A unique tactic, but Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson thought it was a bunch of bunk. In November of 1999, he ruled that Microsoft had committed monopolistic actions. He wrote in his judgment, To the detriment of consumers, Microsoft has done much more than develop innovative browsing software of commendable quality and offer it bundled with Windows at no additional charge. Microsoft has also engaged in a concerted series of actions designed to protect the application's barrier to entry and hence its monopoly power from a variety of middleware threats, including Netscape's web browser and Sun's implementation of Java. Many of these actions have harmed consumers in ways that are immediate and easily discernible. They have also caused less direct, but nevertheless serious and far-reaching, consumer harm by distorting competition. He demanded that Microsoft break into two separate entities, one that focused on the Windows OS and one for everything else. Control-Alt-Delete. Reset. But it wasn't over for Microsoft yet. They attempted to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court in September of 2000, but were denied, sending the case back to the Federal Appeals Court. The original ruling was overturned, and in late 2001, Microsoft settled the case by promising to be more open with their programming interfaces and allowing a panel of three to have full access to their internal systems and records until 2007. So, did bundling Internet Explorer with Windows make Microsoft anti-competitive? 
Not by itself, but the internal practices exposed because of it really didn't make Microsoft look that great in the public eye. Yes, maybe Microsoft was acting a little bit evil. Maybe Bill Gates was a touch Lex Luthor. When I started working on this story, I thought Microsoft was the victim, a successful company that got judged a bit too harshly. I still believe that's true, but I don't think they were entirely innocent either. But regardless, the whole situation pressures Microsoft to keep both their OS and their developers' tools open. Say what you will about blue screens of death, if you want to write or run a piece of software on Windows, there aren't a lot of roadblocks. And even though Netscape didn't make it, its cousin Firefox remains Internet Explorer's strongest competitor. In fact, from Chrome to Opera to Safari, the world of web browsers today is as about as open as anybody could want. Welcome back. Now, if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we did an episode called I Was a Teenage Sysop, where we talked to Brian Lunduke about his BBS. Well, in the process of covering uh, the story, I signed up for the BBS and I recorded it. And I thought it might be interesting for you guys to hear uh, what that experience is like signing up for a BBS. Uh, So without further ado, I'm going to play that audio clip. Okay, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, take you through the process of signing up for a BBS. Okay, I'm here at the the main login screen. It asks me for my login name. I don't have one yet, but it says enter new if you are a new user. So I'll go ahead and enter new. It asks me what handle I want to use on the system. I'm going to enter old wide web. Then it asks for my full real name, and I'll enter Bill Meeks. Then it asks for my address, and I'll enter that uh, for the listening audience. That's 123 Main Street. Then it asks for my voice phone number, which I'll give it here. And then my data phone number, so I presumably so they can call me back if we get disconnected. Then it asks me how many lines my screen can display. I'm using a little flash module to connect to this BBS, so uh, it says the default's 24. I'll just go with that. And it asks for a password, and of course, I'll give it that. Asked to verify it. Then it asks for my birthday. And we're in. It brings you right to a setup screen where you can set up a couple options, whether you want anti-graphics, all that sort of stuff. Anti-art, great stuff. And now it brings me into a screen where they show some statistics for the BBS. Uh, they've had a, over 4,000 calls on this one. Shows the last five people who, to dial in. There's Nemo and Sir Robin and Scarborough and Old Wide Web, of course says I have a new message. Uh, generally, you get a new message when you sign up to a BBS. This one's from Brian. Okay, now I'm here at the main menu. I can do messages, chat, email, account info, and there's a few games they have on here. They have Trade Wars, Legend of the Red Dragon, The Pit, Legend of the Red Dragon 2, and Exitalis. There's no one online to chat. I don't feel like playing a game right now because, you know, I'm working on making the episode. But yeah, that's basically what it, what it was like to sign up for a BBS. Dude, check out my sweet progs! One, two, three, and it's time for progs. On today's edition of progs, I'm going to give you a couple of tools that might keep you from getting sued. First up is the Tor Project. You can find it at torproject.org, and it's basically a piece of software you can download to anonymize all of your internet traffic. 
there are some shady uses for it, but a lot of legitimate ones, too. A couple they've outlined here on their website is, you know, if you're a business uh, that's trying to research your competition, you don't want them to see your traffic coming from your business uh, service provider. A Chinese activist or journalist could use it to access a web page that the Chinese government has blocked. Basically, what Tor does is it breaks up your internet traffic and sends it to a bunch of what's called exit nodes. And those exit nodes grab the information from the internet for you and send it back to your computer encrypted so your service provider can't see that you're accessing the site. It just looks like uh, some random data coming in. Unfortunately, this means running an exit node for Tor can be kind of dangerous, so uh, watch out because you never know who's going to be accessing your internet connection. And the second prog, it's not quite as hardcore as Tor. It's called Foxy Proxy. It's a plugin for Firefox, and they're working on plugins for Internet Explorer and Chrome. And it allows you to spoof an IP address so it seems like you're surfing from somewhere else. You can use this, for example, to watch the BBC site even though you're not in England. You can find a free proxy from the UK and access the site. You can find Foxy Proxy at getfoxyproxy.org, and they also have some paid proxy services for you. Welcome back. Now it's time for the old website of the week. This week's old website is, I'm not exactly sure how old the website is, but it's on tripod, so it has to be pretty old, right? Looks pretty old, too. Uh, This is the official, quote-unquote official, homepage of the Wild Stallions. Uh, If you've ever seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or Bogus Journey, you know the band. It's a, it's a really funny site. It's all done in character, uh, as if it were was done by Bill and Ted. They have announcements. Uh, they have a tour schedule. They even have uh, lyrics, which, if you've never read the lyrics to Bill and Ted's songs, um, they leave a bit to be desired. I, I would encourage you, they haven't had a guest book signature in there since 2000. 2009, so I would highly encourage you to click on the guest book and uh, go ahead and sign it. Uh, my favorite one, though, it was from 2007, uh, from Death, and he's wondering, Am I mentioned at all on this site? After all, I am the bassist. You might be a king or a small street preacher, but sooner or later you dance with the Reaper. That's from the movie. It's wildstallions.tripod.com, now wild spelled W-Y-L-D. And courts adjourned. You can get all our past episodes at oldwideweb.org or by searching for Old Wide Web in iTunes. You want to be on the podcast, right? I'm sure you do. Everyone does. It's the new hip thing. Uh, shoot us a one to two minute audio file with your earliest online memory at oldwideweb at gmail.com or leave a message at 213-290-6359 and I'll use you in a future memory allocation. Any story ideas, feedback, or suggestions can also be sent to oldwideweb at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on the website. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, at oldwidewebpod, and you can follow me. Uh, my handle's at Bill Meeks. Both of those accounts are good to keep an eye on, because sometimes I need some help on the episodes. And I'll be putting announcements out over those Twitter accounts. Well, unless somebody sues me, I'll be back here next week with a new episode of the Old Wide Web. Please don't sue, please don't sue, please don't sue, please don't sue.